You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2019. Today's episode is titled Transcendent Values and Principles. For organizational leaders to build excellent organizations requires submission to the transcendent values and principles of the creator who singularly has the authority to define timeless universal principles, or TUP. This means that organizational leaders need to be students of scripture seeking to comprehensively understand TUP so that they can discern right and wrong in every area of organizational behavior. Leadership, management, ethics, team building, finance, sales, marketing, pricing, service, customer support, personnel policies, and so forth. In every area, organizational leaders must engage in discovering TUP as revealed in Scripture to properly lead organizations and produce the fruit that pleases the Creator. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Chasing the Call. I would like to know how many here are between the age of 12 and 20. Raise your hand really high. Okay, may I ask you to do me a favor? Okay, all right. And I need to ask you all to do me a favor too. So what I'd like to ask you all to do is move to the second row. And I'd like all of you who are 12 to 20 to come to this first row. Will you do that? Huh? Come on. I won't bite. I'm actually going to try to make this fun. That'll get you up, right? If it's fun. Okay. All right, good. Good. Maybe over here. Hey, why is everybody on this side? Let's kind of bounce it out a little bit here. Yeah. All right. I want to recognize you all as the generation in preparation. You understand that? You're being prepared as kingdom leaders for the years ahead. So I I want to address a message to you. And those behind you are parents and relatives and friends who are here to help you do what it is that God has created you to do. Is that okay? You're looking at me like, what is going on here? Nobody's ever done this before. I actually do this in our own church. I have classes where I I teach the youth, and they sit on the front row, and the parents sit on the second row behind them, and we do training. I work with the youth and give the youth biblical truth, and then the parents go home with them, and they continue processing it. Okay, so you parents... What's your responsibility here? Listen very carefully. Think about the truth, not only for your children, but yourself. And you go home and you continue processing, talking about this. See how this works? This is Deuteronomy 6. Remember Deuteronomy 6? Where it talks about you know, how we were to train our children. We rise up in the morning talking about life from a biblical perspective. You know, we walk through the day with our children talking about life from a biblical perspective. And then we go to bed together talking about life from a biblical perspective. And there's all kinds of things in the house, you know, pictures and artwork and, and symbology in the house 
There's a reading of the word, there's prayer, and there's honoring the word. It's always looking at everything from a biblical perspective. So you have to practice doing that. So we want to do a little practice today. So I wanted to deliver a message to you today that uh, hopefully you can take home and continue to process on. This is chasing God's plan for your life. You ever thought about why you're here? Hmm? You thought about that? Well, do you think you're uh, just a, an accident? Hmm? No? You think you're an accident? No? Why are you here? Because my mommy and daddy told me to come. Huh? Then why are you here? Not just here, but I mean, why are you on planet Earth? All right, so let me give you some thoughts. This is a timeline. In school, have you had a timeline before? Okay, have you had a timeline like this where it starts at creation and goes to new, the new creation? Have you seen that? Hmm? You have one like that? Anybody had one like that? Okay, so there's this line. I've called it the meta-narrative. Do you know what that means? Meta means great. Narrative means story. Great story. There's a great story of history. Did you know that uh, when you were born, life didn't start? You know that? When you die, will life end? Probably not. Unless you happen to be here when the Lord returns, then things change. But Barring the return of the Lord, life will continue after you're gone. So, why are you here? What's the point? Well, one of the ways that you understand the point of why you're here is start studying the great story of history. I mean, history is his story. His story is the story of Christ. It's the story of God and the creator of the universe. So it's good to begin to start studying his story. So some things about his story are that very early on we had a fall. Have you heard the fall? Fall of man? What does that mean? You know what that means? The fall? So the fall of man in the garden, what does that mean? Separation from God. Sin, rebellion, disobedience to God. Now that became a systemic problem in man. And so when we are born, we're born with that problem. Okay, so the fall of man has had impact on us from the beginning. All right, so you ever thought about why is it that God didn't just deal with that right then and there? Why didn't he just stop and say, let's just deal with this sin problem with Adam and Eve? But he didn't do that. Instead, he chose to enter into a process of redeeming his creation that would take thousands of years and many generations. And so one of the things that, that has to be communicated to mankind is that man can't. Man cannot, no matter how hard he tries, save himself from sin and the penalty of sin, which is, what's the penalty of sin? Huh? Death. Death. Okay. Was that mom coaching Good mom. Good job. That's what moms are for. They're coaches. Penalty of sin is death. And 
the Old Testament over and over and over tells us we can't save ourselves. The ultimate experiment is the law. When I was uh, a young boy, I came to Christ, and I remember praying the prayer, Lord, if you will just tell me what to do, I will do it. Now, that was a very ignorant prayer because the Israelites had already done that, and they fell on their faces. You see, one of the great stories of the Old Testament is it doesn't matter how hard you try, how good you may think you are, you can never be good enough to please God. And so what do you need then to deal with this problem of sin and death if you can't deal with it yourself? If you can't fix yourself, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Come on. Huh? Savior. You need a Savior. You can't save yourself, so you need a Savior. All right, so that sets up for Christ. He is our Savior. And so now Christ comes, and he deals with it on the cross, and why don't we just bring a closure to everything right then and there? That's probably what we would do, isn't it? If we were in charge, that's it. Done. We've dealt with sin and death. Okay, let's just get on with eternity, with living with God forever, whatever that's going to be like. But no, he doesn't do that. What does he do? Hmm? What's he do? He tells us what he's going to do. He told Matthew 16, remember he told, told Peter, once Peter knew who he was, the Christ, the son of the living God, the one sent to save the world, you know, he tells Peter, you know, I'm going to go die, but I'm dying for a purpose and I'm also then going to engage in building something. What's he going to build? He's going to build his church. That's what Jesus is doing here and now. He's building his church. Now, I teach at a Bible school, and I like to ask my Bible students, you know, what's the greatest thing you can do? What do you think they say? What would you say? What's the greatest thing you can do? Hmm? Come on. What do you think? What's the greatest thing you can do besides dirt biking? Hmm? What's the greatest thing you can do? Hmm? But come on, this is an easy one, you know? Save souls, yes. That's what, the greatest thing you can do is get soul saves. There's nothing more important than getting souls saved. That's it. That's the end all be all. I said, what's Christ doing right now? He told us what he's doing in Matthew 16. What's he doing? Building his church. He's building his church. We're trying to save souls. Now, how do we put that together? How do we do that? Huh? You think they go together? You know, the problem we have is when we think about saving souls, we think it's about going out and finding somebody and getting them to pray a prayer. Okay? Telling them something, giving them a track, giving them some information, have them pray a prayer. We think that's what it is. They pray that prayer, boom, got that notched up, put that notch on my gun. Next. And now we look at it. That's how my Bible students look at it. I'm assuming you probably are thinking the same way. This is not the way God thinks. 
Who do you think could have been the greatest soul winner ever? Jesus. Is there any doubt about that? Okay. No question. Jesus is absolutely would have been the greatest soul winner ever. Is that what he spent his time doing? He spent some time with large numbers of people. He spoke to them. He did miracles. He healed. He did all kinds of things with them. But what did he spend most of his time with? He spent most of his time with his disciples and in particular with three. His most intimate times, for example, his transfiguration. Who's there at his transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. Now, we might look at that and say, Jesus, you missed a great opportunity. That could have been a powerful experience for a lot of people. But you only had three. What, what are you doing here? You don't understand really how to promote, you know, how to market yourself. You know, we can help you. You know, we're arrogant enough to think we could do it better. Jesus didn't soul win like we think of it. What he did was he invested his life in people to build people. You build a local church or you build the church at large by building people. And building people takes a lot of time. So we've got to you know, get our mindset on what Jesus is doing and know what we're here to do is what he's doing. We're not here to redefine what he's doing, to come up with some other idea that, so, thinking that we can do it better. I think we're all concerned that, that people or not enough people are going to get saved. We have a sovereign God who will accomplish his purpose. He will save the people with or without us. So we've got to be clear on that. Okay, so we have Christ coming. He is building his ecclesia. That means that's the Greek word for church, translated church. It literally means people who are called out to rule on behalf of Christ. That's the idea. And in the end, there will be an accountability for our lives. Everyone will be resurrected, those who know Christ and those who don't know Christ. Read Revelation 20. And those who don't know Christ will be sentenced to the lake of fire because there's no way they can save themselves. Those who know Christ have been saved by the blood of the lamb. And that's the only way we're spared. So that's the big overarching story. And in the midst of this story, there, are, there you are. See yourself up there? That little arrow with you on it? That's you. In this great story of history, you are there for a reason because we have a sovereign, intentional, strategic God who's accomplishing his purpose. So the question is, why are you there? Why are you there? So I want to focus on a text, and then I want to tell you a story. You like a story? Okay, this is kind of like a, a, Bible, a bedtime Bible story, I'll tell you. But I want to set the t context here for you. So I'm going to use the imagery of Scripture here. You see you have a, a, a young man running a race. Now, you, most of you, have you, have you all run track? You run a race? Okay. So uh, you ran track. Uh, what did you run? 100 meters. 100 meters. Okay. Um, so when you, did, did you ever run a race where you had to stay in a lane? Okay. What, what was that? 
100 meters, you've got to stay in your lane 100 meters. Okay, did you get to pick that race? Okay, you, somebody told you that's your race. Okay, did you get to define how the race is conducted? Okay, did you define when it started? Did you find the end line? Did you find your lane? Did you define it? No, you didn't define your lane. Okay, did, did you get coaching on how to do this? Did you have to wear the right clothes? And if you didn't wear the right clothes, including shoes, could you run it well? You couldn't run it well in street shoes, could you? Or in a suit, okay? All right, or even, you know, even your bare feet, could you? You need to have the right shoes. You need to have the right clothes on. You need to have the right coaching. Everything has to be right, and you didn't define hardly any of that. Okay, that's the picture. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here we have a conclusion. When you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Why is therefore there? It is there because it's concluding off of something else that's been discussed previous to this. And what's the previous chapter in the book of Hebrews? You remember that chapter? Huh? The the parents can help you a little bit. It's okay. You'll kind of be quiet about it. Hebrews 11, what's Hebrews 11 about? Faith. Some people call it the hall of faith. It's kind of a recitation of all these great, great men and women of God in the Old Testament times and how they walk by faith. Walking by faith means that you are trusting in God whom you cannot see to live in a world that you can see, which is not natural. The natural is to see and live by what we see. And he's saying, nope, that's not the way I'm asking you to live. I'm asking you to live based on my revelation in my word, through my spirit. And then based on that, you interpret reality and make choices. So that's the, the, the Hebrews 11 text, the hall of faith. So we're, these witnesses are watching us. We have a gallery They're rooting for us. And he's saying the mandate here is let us lay aside every weight. So have you ever had ankle weights? You ever never used ankle weights? Anybody ever used ankle weights? Can you imagine what ankle weights are? If you put ankle weights on your legs and you kind of run with those a bit, what do you think you'll do? What would you do? Kind of strengthen your legs? Okay. And after you get through running with those and then you take those ankle weights off, how are you going to feel? Like you can really fly, can't you? Like, wow, I can go. Well, that's the picture here. We don't throw away those weights. And then he says the sin that so clings with us. Now, it's interesting. He mixes his imagery here. You know, the, the weight, you know, relates to the athletic competition. You have weights in that. And then he says sin. How often have you heard, had a coach talk to you about sin? 
any kind of athletic activity. Have you had a coach talk to you about sin? No, they don't use that word, do they? No, because we only use the word sin in church, right? Okay. Isn't that what we do? Yeah, we don't talk about sin anywhere outside of church. You know, you know Steve's a police officer. You know that? Okay. Do you know what he deals with? He deals with sin. He is a sin manager. That's what he is. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for him because we've got a lot of sin that needs to be managed. Now, ultimately, sin management is not what we're after, but, you know, transformation is a challenging thing, and it takes a lot of time, and we can't transform everyone because we're not called to. So those we're not called to transform, in Steve's role, he has to manage their sin that provides us a context for us to be able to do what we're called to do safely. So we need to be very thankful for the sin managers. They're very important to us in a fallen world. Well, sin is all about us in every area of life. There's sin in the home. There's sin in the church. There's sin in the workplace. There's sin in the community. There's sin in public policy. There's sin in professional life. Accountants and lawyers, doctors, there's sin there. There's sin all around us in every area of life. The sin clings to us closely. So we're told to set aside that sin. So you have to identify it and begin to try to find, how do I eradicate this sin in my life? Now, do you all have any sin in your life? Yeah? We could go into a confession time, but I'll let your parents handle that. Okay? You got to know that sin is all about us. Whether you know the Lord or not, you have sin. You understand when you come to Christ, you, you don't come to Christ. He regenerates you by his spirit. And then he gives you the capacity to believe in him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. In other words, that faith didn't come from you. It came from God. That not of yourself, so that no one would boast. For we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do the work assignment that God put us here to do. So, our race is about obedience to God, running the race that God has called us to run. Now, suppose that um, in your life, you give you consent to the fact that you have a race. At the same time, you know that you've had some hard experiences, that you've been mistreated. Maybe you've had some traumatic experience of some sort. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been neglected. Maybe you've been abandoned. Maybe you've faced death. There's probably some people here that have faced death. Maybe uh, you've been betrayed. Maybe you were wrongly accused, did nothing wrong, and you're wrongly accused. All those things can happen. Can those be a hindrance? Can they be a weight that would hold you back? What do you think? Think so? Yeah. Those can be a weight to hold you back. So what if I tell you a story about someone in biblical times that faced these things? You want a story like that? Hmm? Does anybody know somebody in Scripture that has experiences like that? Trauma, face death, 
betrayal, abandonment, wrongly accused, neglected, abandoned, forgotten. There's a guy like that in Scripture. Who do you think that might be? David. Hmm? David? That's, that's a really good guess. And I could make that, I could make a case for David. Yes, I could do that, but I'm not going to talk about David. Talk about somebody else. Who else in scripture? Hmm? Oh, my goodness. You led the scribe. I'm impressed. Put it up there for you. I just wanted to see if anybody would notice. Very good. Very good. All right. So let's talk about Joseph. All right, so Joseph is in the line of Abraham. Now, you remember Abraham was given the promise. See, one of the Old Testament experiences was, will you believe God if he gives you an unconditional promise? Can you live in faith? Can you trust him? And when Abraham was tested because he was faced with death, what did he choose to do? Remember the story? He's afraid he's going to be killed because he had to go to Egypt, you know, to survive. And he's afraid that the Egyptians are going to kill him because he's got a pretty wife. And so what does he tell his wife to do? Huh? Yeah. Tell him you're my sister so they won't kill me. You see, he couldn't trust God in his promise. God had made him an incredible promise about multiple generations, his his heirs would be like the sands on the sea, and he would be the one through whom the world would be blessed. He had this incredible promise, and he couldn't live in that. So what you have here is Abraham and his heirs in the book of Genesis, and one of those heirs is Joseph. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, you know why they hated Joseph in the first place? Because he was the favorite child. Yeah. There might be a favorite child in your family. Did you know that? So that becomes a challenge. There's all kinds of lessons here for parents and for children on how to deal with that. But let's stay focused on Joseph. He was hated by his brothers, and then he has this dream, and they're going to hate him anymore. Because he said this. Hear the dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep stood up, arise, and it basically was here and all you other sheaves were around me bowing down and behold your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers behold i've dreamed another dream behold the sun the moon the 11 stars were bowing down to me so then he tells the dream to his father and his brothers his father rebuked him and said what is this dream that you've dreamed should I and your mother and brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Fathers can be very wise at times. You know, you know initially the father rebuked him, and then the father, I think, had remorse and realized there's probably something to this. But the brothers, they're blinded by jealousy. So what happened then? What happened next? You remember? Joseph's 17 years old. His brothers are up in Shechem. 
He's down by Jerusalem. It's about 50 miles. And his father's concerned about the brothers. I don't know why, the, why Joseph wasn't with them, but he wasn't. And so he sends, Jacob, his father, sends Joseph to go check on the brothers. So he does. And so the brothers see him coming. They are livid. They're angry. They're jealous. And so they see an opportunity. Let's kill him. We'll get rid of this problem. Let's kill him. Now, Judah, now Judah would be the one through whom Christ would come, you know, was there as part of this. And so was Reuben, and Reuben was the firstborn. Now, Reuben says, don't kill the boy. Okay, they put him in a, in a hole in the ground, a cistern, and apparently he was deep enough that they, he couldn't get out. Now, I know you guys are very agile and you can do those things, but Joseph couldn't get out of this one. So he's stuck down in this pit. Now, Reuben's saying, don't kill him, thinking I will come back and rescue him. Now, Judah, who would be a forerunner of Christ, he comes up with an idea. Hey, let's don't kill him. Let's make money with him. Sounds like a good idea. Let's make money. So, hey, there's these traitors come along here. They happen to be our distant relatives. Because Abraham was ultimately their father, like he was our father. And let's sell him to him. So they sell him to these Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites take him down to Egypt. When, Judah, when Reuben comes back to rescue him, what does he find? Joseph's gone. So now we've got to come up with a story to tell dad. So what are we going to tell him? Let's take that coat of many colors. By the way, it's not clear that it was a coat of many colors. The Hebrew is not that. That's kind of a a speculation. It's certainly a precious coat, probably more precious than, than anything any of them had. So they took that precious coat. They took blood from a lamb and sprinkled it on there, take it back to the father and say, we don't know what happened to him. We just found his coat with blood on it. So they presume he's dead. So it was a big charade, a big farce that they perpetrated here on the father. So in the meantime, Joseph is going down to Egypt. He's faced death. Can you imagine facing death? That's very, very hard. Face death. He's sold into slavery. He's now become the servant of the captain of the guard. It's kind of like, in the United States, we have the Secret Service that guards our president. It's kind of like being the head of the Secret Service. So I'm guessing it's something like that. And this captain of the guard is, uh, quickly recognizes that Joseph is a very able person, very capable, and he gives him a promotion. So he's promoted to the head of his household, and he is in charge of running everything in his household. The only thing that Potiphar withholds from Joseph is his wife. But Potiphar has a wife that is not a very nice person. She's a very evil person, and she is trying to seduce Joseph. And she's unsuccessful doing it, so she finally, as a jilted woman, decides to take revenge on Joseph. So she wrongly accuses him. And Joseph is thrown into prison. 
And while he's in prison, he has a similar experience that he had with Potiphar, the keeper of the prison, recognized Joseph is very capable. He is obviously, the hand of God is with him. I'm just going to let him run everything. So he became in charge of the whole prison. And so he's running the prison, and one day, two of the king's servants are locked up. The, The person that handled the wine cup, which was the beverages, and the baker who baked for the king. They fell out of favor for some reason. We don't know why what happened. And one night, the same night, both of them have a dream. Joseph walks in. He sees them downcast and said, what's wrong? Well, we both have a dream and we don't have anybody to tell us what our dream meant. And Joseph tells him, God is in charge of interpreting dreams. He can give an interpretation. So tell me your dream, and we'll ask the Lord to give us the interpretation. So the cupbearer tells the dream, and basically the interpretation of the dream is that he's going to be restored to his former position in three days. Then the baker tells his dream. He's getting bold, and he thought, that was a really nice interpretation. I like that, so I'm going to tell you my dream. And in his dream, the interpretation is, in three days, your head's coming off. Yeah, so we got two men, two different dreams, two different interpretations. And Joseph said to the cupbearer, don't forget me. Well, in three days, cupbearer is promoted and the baker is, what happened to him? It's executed. Exactly like Joseph predicted. Now, when uh, the cupbearer went back to the, the Pharaoh, what did he do? He forgot Joseph. He forgot him. Until two years later. Two years later. Now, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17. This is now 13 years later. He's been in bondage, both in Potiphar's house and in prison. He seemingly has been forgotten. He's been betrayed. He's been mistreated. He's been threatened with death. I mean, all kinds of things that cause blocks, things that can impair us and harm us in running our race. The word of the Lord says in Psalm 105 that all that happened to him tested him. Would that test you? Yeah, I think so. It tests me. Would I really believe in the promise of God? God gave me a prophetic word many years ago through a dream that this is going to happen. And how am I going to be the ruler if I'm in jail? How is that going to happen? And I can't do anything about it. I can't get myself out. Well, God is the God of wonders. And so he executes a plan. And his plan is he gives a dream to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, looking for interpretation, there's nobody that can interpret it. And guess what? The cupbearer repents. He says, two years ago, this Hebrew in jail interpreted my dream correctly, and he interpreted the baker's dream correctly, and I forgot all about him. All he asked me to do was remember him when I got out, and I didn't. But he can help you. And so Pharaoh said, bring him here. So the Pharaoh brought him there, and Joseph had to get dressed and clean up and all that, and he came And he provided the interpretation of the dream to Pharaoh. Now, the end result of this 
is now Joseph is promoted to the second highest position in Egypt. And Pharaoh's dream was a prophetic word that we're going to have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, use the years of plenty to get ready for the years of famine. And Joseph recommended to Pharaoh, you need to find somebody who's very capable, very able to manage things as you get ready for the famine. And Pharaoh was smart enough to realize, if you're smart enough to figure this out, you've got to be smart enough to execute it. And so Joseph is put in charge. The famine comes seven years later. This is now, Joseph is now 37, 38 perhaps. And the famine is heavy. The famine is heavy all across, not just in Egypt, but all across the world. And people find out there's grain down in Egypt. And so Judah... And his family are starving, so he sends his sons down there, and they, they wind up hooking up with Joseph, and Joseph becomes their savior. Without Joseph going before them and being elevated to a position of rulership and executing the strategic plan that God gave Pharaoh for Joseph to execute, with all that happening, there would have been death and carnage all across the land. But God sent um, basically another version of the ark. And the ark happened to be the food that Egypt would have. So, and for the sake of time, I'm going to have to skip a lot of this story. And let's go on to the, some concluding comments here. The way forward in life many times may look like it's backwards. But think about Joseph. When he's facing death, betrayal, winds up in slavery, he's got this prophetic word through the dream. It looks like a step back. This can't be a step toward the purpose of God for my life. This can't be putting me in my lane to run my race. So you have to keep in mind that like Joseph experienced, God may put you in strange situations, difficult situations, challenging situations. Is that okay? And he's doing that to prepare you. Joseph was sold into slavery. He was unjustly imprisoned. But yet these were steps, necessary steps to prepare him for what God had called him to do. You have to see your life in light of the big story. You see, there's this great meta-narrative that's playing out that involved Christ being the heir of Abraham and needed to flow through the Abrahamic line, and Joseph was part of that. If Joseph wasn't there to provide for his people, to be the agent of saving his people, then who knows where that would have gone. God is always working his plan. He's very creative, and he's got a big picture that most of us don't see very well. A fourth point, Joseph was able to forgive because he could see with metaphysical awareness. Now, I know that may be a term you're not familiar with, so let me define it for you. Metaphysical awareness means to see from God's perspective. Metaphysical is beyond the natural. Meta is beyond physical, natural. It's beyond the natural. It's greater than the natural. And awareness is seeing, how does God see this situation? So at the end of... End of uh, Jacob's life when the brothers are fearful that Joseph is going to exact revenge on them for what they did to him, Joseph lets them know, no, no, I'm not God. 
He said this, as for you, what you meant for evil against me, that is you meant to kill me and then you wind up selling me, you want to get rid of me because you were jealous and angry toward me, God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Salvation came through that horrible event of being betrayed, nearly killed, sold into slavery, and then unjustly treated, abandoned in prison. All of that was preparation for promotion so that God would then effect his purpose through Israel. God has a big plan. Your life fits into his big plan. And you've got to begin to seek the Lord for that big metaphysical awareness of the meta narrative. What it is he wants to do in and through your life? Salvation came through ruling. Salvation came through ruling. We don't think about that. We're in an age when we think about influence. We as Christians want to influence. And influence is okay, but that's really not what we're here to do. Genesis 1.26 says we're here to rule God's creation. Now, you don't have authority to rule in every area. You have specific authority. Just like you have a specific lane you're supposed to run in, you have specific authority. So wherever you have specific authority, that's where you rule. Joseph didn't rule from the prison. He ruled when he was promoted to the second in command. So where God gives you that promotion and authority, then you can, you can rule. Now, let me just apply this to, I want to specifically think about metaphysical awareness and tell you a quick story about something that happened recently in my world that really illustrated the importance of being very metaphysically aware. You've got to learn to think that way. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he became metaphysically aware of the great story and his role he played in that story. So metaphysical awareness is a big deal. So I just want to stress that for a moment. We had a church leader in the Dallas area who became very ill suddenly. He had had some kind of surgery. It did not go well. And he, he got very sick quickly. They had to airlift him from his house to the hospital. He was in the hospital for a week, and the reports were not good. I mean, we we thought we were probably going to lose him, but in the end, he pulled through, and he was released. And when he was released, he said, God is good. Now, most, most of us would say that. The question is, what if he had died? Would you say God is good? See, this takes metaphysical awareness. So let me tell you what was happening at the same time to one of my good friends. This is Michelle Marie Ashley. She passed on April the 9th, 2018, about the same time that the pastor was in the hospital. And I had known her for 20 years. We had been good friends. She was a very godly woman. I was very involved the last year and a half of her life in praying for her and walking with her and her husband And we had spent many, many hours praying for healing and looking for solutions. And in the end, the Lord took her. Was God good? Was God good? Her husband is still asking me, I'm looking for the goodness of God in this. He hasn't quite seen the metaphysical awareness that he needs to see here. Because the reality is God is good. He's always good. We can't always see it. 
And to give us a picture of this, you have to know that there are things in life you're not going to understand. But you have to believe the word of God. So the word of God says in Psalm, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now that doesn't look precious to us. That does not look good to us. But we have to know God has got a bigger story, a big plan, a big purpose. You fit in. You have to have metaphysical awareness to be able to see it. All right, four points and we'll be through. To run your race well requires vision of the meta narrative. You've got to become a student of history, a student of how God is working through history. Secondly, you have to have metaphysical awareness. You have to ask God for the grace to see things from his perspective, not measure things from your perspective. What is God up to? What's in it for God? That's always the right question. Thirdly, you have to expect there will be testing and training. Was Joseph tested? Do you think God used that time, those 13 years where he was incarcerated, either through slavery or in prison? You think God used that to train him? I mean, at the end, he was still very convicted of God, who he was, and faith in God. He never gave up on that, notwithstanding the test. You've got to get clear. You will be tested. You will be trained. And you have to know that God is always good. No matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, how painful it is, how trying it is, God is always good. So these are keys to helping you run your race, help you find your race. You have a race. Right now, you probably don't have a clue what it is. But guess what? You and your parents and the people God's put in your life are there to help you find it and help you get prepared and help you run it. So allow them to help you. Allow them to be part of your life. Don't shut them out. Don't turn them off. Tune in. Press in. And trust that God will work through them. And he will guide and direct you into your race. And then you will run your race to the glory of God. Is that good? All right. I want to pray for you. I want you guys to stand up. And I want to ask the parents to, to reach out your hands to your, these children. Stand up. Come on. Let's stand up. And want to just pray a special prayer over you guys that you would see as God sees, that you would be able to discern his meta narrative, that you would know trials and tribulations are good, and that you would know that God is always good, no matter what's going on. Father, I lift up these precious young people. I thank you for your creation of them. I thank you for your plan and purpose for their lives. I thank you for your goodness already in their lives. And I thank you for whatever test and whatever honing you've already done in their lives. I pray that it would be interpreted correctly because they see from your perspective. I ask for revelation of how to see the big story of history and how they fit in and what you want them to do in life what it is that you've created them for. I pray for their parents and their relatives that they would be great commissioning agents, authority figures who would discern your will, your purpose for their lives, and seek and seek to guide them and direct them and prepare them for that purpose and support them in that purpose. So, Father, give these parents and friends and relatives great wisdom and discernment, 
perseverance, faithfulness to be true to you, to do your will according to your ways for your glory always with these precious young people. So, Father, I commit them to you. The next generation of your leaders that you're preparing now, use today and use these precious commissioning agents in this place, in this body, to prepare these people for your destiny for them. I commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.